1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking to Hedwig Emilia Waters, Horizon Europe ERA Postdoctoral Fellow at Polotsky University in the Czech Republic. We're discussing her new book, Moral Economic Transitions in the Mongolian Borderlands. This book features a detailed case study of a remote area located in Mongolia along the Chinese border during its transition from socialism to a market-based economy. This transition has brought both rapid economic change and political backlash from rural citizens. Hedwig detailed the many layers in transition with great thought and attention. Hedwig, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Caleb.
1: Of course. You know, th- this book w- w- was really fascinating. I- I've done about four or five um, books on borderlands, and I just find borderlands to be endlessly interesting locations, great for, for studies, uh, because they- they're usually function a little differently, have interesting politics. Uh, but before jumping to the book, I was just wondering if you tell us a little about yourself and your background.
2: I describe myself as an economic anthropologist, uh, mostly because of the different work I have done uh, throughout the years and kind of the focus of the book as well. So my anthropology field work uh, has always been focused on Mongolia so far. Um, I first went to Mongolia in 2006 as an undergraduate study abroad student. And I went there to live with, you know, you know, wanted an adventure. So I went and lived with nomadic pastoral herders on in the Taiga region of Northern Mongolia in Siberia. And, um, you know, I loved it. And so it started a long-term relationship with the country that's now been almost 17 years. So I've gone back every few years um, through the last decade or more and um, doing different projects and uh, to just explain why I call myself an economic anthropologist or what I focus on um, so Mongolia and we, we're going to get into that too but it was a socialist republic up until 1991 at which point it started the transition quote-unquote to a market democracy and I say transition also because in Mongolian people call it a transition um, so that's what I'm referring to when I use that term And um, all of my fieldwork throughout the last decade or more has been focused on how different concepts of like Mongolian, so first of all, Mongolian struggles to create this um, market economy, but also like how Mongolian concepts of culture, uh, morality, historical cosmologies, interactions with the land, also gender ideas, how all these things um, have engaged with this shift to a market economy. So I guess because of that, my research has always been on this nexus of political economy and cultural like exemplars or ideas. Um, that's why I use that term.
1: So for this particular book, was there a, a moment when the idea first came to you or an experience that you had uh, where, the, where the book started to crystallize?
2: the way that came about is when I did my I did my PhD at University College London at UCL in the Department of Anthropology between 2014 and 2019. And at the time, I was in this big EU-funded anthropology proje- project. So it was like many people and I was a PhD student in it. And um, so the book kind of emerged from that project. And so the background of that project is that so Mongolia, as I mentioned in my experience moving there and living in the Taiga region, um, is a country that's often well known internationally as having a lot of pastoral herders. So pastoral herders being people who live and move around with their animals and live off of them. So in Mongolia still like 10% of the population are herders, um, so 300,000 people. And um, at the same time though in Mon- uh, in 2011, so, in the, 20, in the early 2000s, um, vast amounts of mineral resources were discovered in Mongolia. And so in 2011, Mongolia had the fastest growing economy in the world. Kind of, it was like a rush, a mineral rush or, on the country. So um, the project that I was in was about this kind of contrast of like the stark contrast of like the herder who overnight gets like thrust into this like hyper-globalized, financialized mineral economy. And so the project's focus was to look at how different people all around the country have like adapted or changed or like how it like alters their lives. So my, as a PhD student, I was encouraged to go just as far away as possible. So I moved. So as I, when I started my PhD field work, I went in 2015 to the area that I talk about in the book that I call Magta. So we'll talk about that in a second. But I lived um, with a family in Magtal for on and off um, for over two years, and I did my field work with them. And so, again, like the project's focus was to see how like all sorts of people were being affected by this like abstract mineral financialized economy. And so um, I was living in this small town and kind of was focused on that. Like, how is how are these different? phenomena from the city or from like a global perspective now percolating down or affecting local people here in this remote area. So um, yeah, and then as part of that project, then ultimately the book emerged, which is why it was published with UCL Press.
1: You've, you've already mentioned a little bit about the this major economic transition uh, that occurred in Mongolia and, the, and the, some of the, the impacts um, that it had, but uh, would you get into a little bit more why this uh, transition occurred. Was it just the result of the you know the collapse of the Soviet Union? Was there something else at play as well?
2: I mean, yeah, I mean several things, but of course the largest factor was the collapse of the Soviet Union. I mean, Mongolia, for those who don't know, is pretty isolated country. It's sequestered between Russia and China, so it almost exclusively so besides Kazakhstan, but it's pretty uh, isolated. And um, but it was seen as a buffer zone between Russia and China. So technically, Mongolia wasn't a Soviet republic, it was a socialist republic. But during the Soviet era, um, Russia did flood it with funds because it was supposed to be um, in like Marxist or, or Soviet teleology, transition to socialism, from feudalism, capitalism, and then socialism. But so Mongolia went Ideally, from feudalism to socialism directly. So the Soviet government gave it a lot of money to like create this like idealized example of how you could do that. And so, point being is that like up, I think at the end of the socialist era in Mongolia, um, up like around a third of all income was from the Soviet Union directly. So as a result, when the transition happened, or when the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, the Mongolian government just did not have the funds to maintain itself. Um, So, and at the time, the countryside during the Soviet era was full of cooperatives, um, and also Magtash was a cooperative that we'll discuss soon. Um, But so... The transition happened. And um, so it was partly that the Soviet system, uh, the Socialist Republic couldn't maintain itself. But of course, there were also interests um, in ni- in the early 90s. Uh, many Mongolian politicians or various politicians also wanted um, Mongolia to implement best practice in terms of like international, um, at the time, like structural adjustment or like, like kind of advice from The international from the world bank and international monetary fund and different development programs so there was also that desire partly in the government and also externally um so that resulted in you know rapid privatization of many of the cooperatives and a quick change um does that answer your question
1: yeah of course i think that that's um that's really great background uh just for you know some of the other things that we'll be discussing and and that you uh, really look at firsthand. It, you, you mentioned uh, Magtal. Uh, why do you call the area, uh, your area of focus, Magtal? Uh, and what can you tell us about this place and its features?
2: Okay. Well, as will become more clear, but the reason why I call it Mug, so Magtash, which is like with me I'm having a Mongolian accent on it, but Magtal. Um, the reason I call it that or gave it this name is, you know, as anthropologists, it's very important that when people talk to us, they feel comfortable. Um, so a lot of activity that I encountered um, but that people were doing in their everyday lives was technically illegal or informal. And so, in order for people to speak openly to me and feel comfortable, I had to guarantee that it would be everything would be anonymized. So I chose this term um for the the place. So Magtash itself in Mongolian means like a like a hymn of praise and it's the I chose this term also because it's the furthest eastern region um in Mongolia so Mongolia itself looks like a so like a kind of like a shape of like an American football and it's like on the eastern end of it like the eastern tip and so I thought like a like a hymn of praise to the sun or something that's the way I was thinking about it when I gave it this term um But I've talked to many Mongolians since then who like it, so I think it seems to be pretty applicable. Um, So the town itself, it takes like two to three days to travel there from Ulaanbaatar over unpaved roads. And then you reach this tiny town, but it's like a very large township. It's a huge uh, land area. um, And the township itself is just around 1,700 people or or the whole area is around 3,000 people. And the people that live there are mostly herders. So these pastoral herders I was talking about, or also ex-workers who worked in the cooperative when magtach was part was a Soviet or socialist cooperative during the, the Soviet socialist era. But then of course, as the cooperative collapsed um, in 1991, all the cooperatives were dissolved through a privatization law. And so as the cooperative was dissolved, all the people who used to work there then were unemployed overnight. So, and that was a phenomenon across the rural regions in Mongolia um, and in also the post-socialist world. So, uh, yeah, and in Magdash, then most people became unemployed very quickly. Um, but so you could call it a de-industrialized area. But so what happened as a result, though, is in the 90s, there was like rapid uh, inflation because the Togrok, the Mongolian you know, currency was worth it wasn't worth a lot. There wasn't high demand, and um, there was a lot of barter. And as the Mongolian border opened up to China, many people didn't have other forms of employment, so they started. So, Mactash itself is like an incredibly rich resource uh, area. It's got very fertile soils, um, and it's a, a very large steppe environment, and so. Kind of a unique ecological environment. So when the border to China opened up and people had no forms of employment or were unemployed, many people just learned to first, they went to the former Soviet cooperatives and stripped um, them of scrap metal and then sold it to China. And then after that, it kind of they graduated to the environment and then they started going around um, also with Chinese encouragement at the time in the early 90s or in the late 90s rather. Um, Chinese, different Chinese entrepreneurs also came across the border, looked at what kind of resources were available, and kind of in, and informed the populace of what kind of things could be sold in China. So because it's such a research rich area, the population that was unemployed, but left started developing this tendency to basically make their money off of resource extraction from the environment that was then brought across the border and sold in China as the state or like the Mongolian sy- state system emerged after that, a lot of their activities slowly became illegalized. So technically, um, they might be illegal. And that's why when I talked to, uh, you know, different people as an anthropologist, I wanted to make them feel comfortable. So I told them that everything they told me would would be anonymized. So in the book, there are like a little, like, I can think of a story, for example, of one person who lost some Like, I think I write that they lost toes in a tractor accident, but because I knew that if anybody read the book, they'd know, oh, that person is this person. And I didn't want that. So I kind of, so I changed what, like, kind of what they lost or physical, the physical injury they had, you know, things like that. I kind of, in addition to changing my as a place, I changed, like, very obvious markers of people.
1: Were people very, you know, forthcoming with the information that they gave you or, you know, did you have to win people's trust?
2: Um, so it's a great question. It's two-sided. Um, so first of all, I lived there over two years, right? And so I was, and it's very far away. I was the only foreigner um that people had seen, like when I say foreigner, I mean non-Chinese or Russian individual. So who is was, who was there? Um, and so people were very confused. Even my homestay father, the family I lived with, often asked me why exactly I'm here because I would be there for, you know, an anthropology student, like, you don't really know what you're looking for. When you start, you move to an area. And then you tell people, though, who are generally just trustful, because they also have a history of war and spies and things that you're just there to like, figure out the economy. And you're in like in an economic anthropology project. And people are like, you know, I did get my own homestay dad was like, are you sure you're not a spy? I mean, I like you, and you can stay but like, are you sure? (laughs) Like, really, I'm not a spy. This is really just me doing field work. But I understood from their perspective why it seemed weird. Like, you would think that's weird, too, I think, uh, in these kind of sensitive areas. So regarding if they were open, so because I was, like, a student and there for so long, and, you know, I spoke Mongolian fairly well, I think just the novelty of it, and I also think I just like, as an anthropologist, you have to listen to people. And I think like in some ways, like in hindsight, I think like it was like a therapy, like I think I served like a therapy role for some people, like when they feel like they're not like they're doing something they don't love um, or like illegal, they don't love it, but they feel like they have to. And then like when I interview them and I'm like very understanding, I feel like people sometimes it came out, especially my more recent work where we can discuss it because it's an extension of this. But um, people, I feel like felt like sometimes like once they had trusted me, they felt like they wanted to talk to me because like I would ask them questions that their family and friends didn't care about, you know.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: What else can you share about the, the culture um, of the area, uh, and, and you know also the, the types of you know jobs and and uh, both legal and eco- and illegal economic activity taking place in the area.
2: I mentioned that it was a cooperative during the soviet era and then that that collapsed or was dissolved and there were many ex-workers there um at the time the narrative very strongly like culturally was like in my field site specifically was that there was like that the state had like abandoned us like that was that it was like a very strong feeling of neglect like during the soviet union you know there was a lot more like everyday awareness of the state being present Um, Whereas now it wasn't. And in contrast to some other work where people talk about that, that like, like local groups, like local or like rural populations might find that positive. It's like a sign of freedom. In Magtash, it was people were angry about it. And so, um, so there's like a very strong feeling of like anger at being neglected and people having to do like new forms of entrepreneurial, like, like I mentioned resource extraction to make ends meet, not because they loved it, but because there was no other like option. And um, in general, the area has become very much like a resource frontier for um, both Russia and China. And now, and also at the time when I was there, there were increasingly like large companies coming that were had as their heads, like parliamentary members, Mongolian parliamentary members with either funding from Russia or China or Chinese companies that came to the area um, to set up either agricultural companies or oil companies, um, but they wouldn't employ local people. So it created this kind of parallel economy where you had like these big companies that would get all their employment and like their employees and also um, products from Ulaanbaatar, the capital city, and then exported abroad. And like none of the money would stay locally. Whereas local people would have to engage in these like illegal activities. So that was very much the tenor, or like how, like kind of the political economy when I was there. And that's why people also like griped a lot about being neglected. Like they wouldn't be able to participate in these companies and the government wasn't even paying attention. It was what they would say. Um, so regarding the major economic activities. So those like big companies would, you know, there there's a Chinese oil company. There's a, there are these large agricultural companies with um, parliament heads, um, whereas local people very much made. So, and we can talk about that too, but the major economic culture was, is that during the most of the year, people would take out debt from banks to like sustain their lives. And then in the fall, when it was like resource season, people would smuggle, like different forms of wildlife. So in the book, I talk a lot about fish because that was who I, the family I was in. But there's also antelope and and wolves. Um, and then also um, a big form of industry locally is a plant called feng feng. And so I don't know if you've heard of ginseng because that's like a big, very popular um kind of Asian traditional medicine plant. But so feng feng is an emerging market very similar to ginseng, where um, so people at feng feng is essentially a traditional chinese medicinal plant and so many many people in my field site made money that they paid bank loans off of through feng feng so it was just a phenomenon when i was in there in 2017 the whole town technically it was illegal but the whole town would go out picking feng feng and making money off of it um so yeah so essentially these recent during the day, di- during the year when they didn't have income debt, and then in the fall paying that back through feng feng, uh, or other forms of wildlife.
1: Use the uh, the phrase "moral economic dichotomization" uh, to to refer to aspects of this economic shift and different ways in which people are perceiving the shifts in the economy. What do you
2: mean by this by this phrase? Uh, yes, that's a good question. Um, so the term "moral economy." is first this moral economic dichotomization that i use and that is also partly in the title of the book um is inspired by the concept moral economy first stuff first off um the term moral economy is used a lot in social sciences um and anthropology sociology and other social sciences to describe economic behavior that is not driven by rational choice. So in, of course, like Western economics um, or economic theory, a lot, it's often depicted that people make decisions based on rationality and self-interest or economic profit. But uh, moral economy is often used uh, in social sciences to depict examples where people are driven um, to make economic choices based on morality, religion, and other forms of value. And so an example being like that people like Christmas buy a bunch of, you know, don't aren't necessarily driven by economic self-interest, but they are driven by morality or like different self-forms of morality or religion to participate in economic enterprise. So you could write a moral economy of Christmas, for example, book if you if you were so inclined. Um, but so that's how it's generally used. And so um, so in the book, I use this term because a lot of people or like, I, I use the term moral economic dichotomization um, specifically because I encountered a lot of people who were, it, you know, like I mentioned, they were engaged in activity, but a lot of the activities like this extraction was, con- many people felt uncomfortable with this situation because of historical ideas of morality. So what I mean is that during socialism, for example, the idea of profiteering off of other people, like make like being a money lender and making money off of the interest of somebody else's lives, um, livelihood, would have been deemed immoral. And then also during like, according to Mongolian historical ideas of shamanism and Buddhism, digging the land like with feng, feng extraction or other forms of wildlife extraction, would have been deemed immoral. So as a result of that, um, many people were now in Magtash were now dependent on these forms of enterprise, but did not love it. And so I found that often when I would then ask them how they talked about it or how they justified this, they would create these frameworks that I call moral economic dichotomization. And to give a specific example is like from like a Western context, is that if, for example, in like Christian inspired concepts of morality, a loan, if you get debt, for example, from a bank, and you use it to spend on your family or to go to school or to, um, you know, to, to, to reach some goal in your life, people tend to think of that as like morally okay. But if you took debt out and you, you wasted the money and you just like went on a shopping spree, often people would say that debt is this kind of debt is immoral or not, not ideal. So, just as an example, like as an example of that, when I asked people in Magtash about if they liked extraction, if they liked being, you know, the forms of money lending or and their dependence on it, often people created frameworks where they would say, "Oh, it's okay if I'm doing it in this way, you know, being dependent on a money lender is okay if they're helping me in a time of need, but you know, I call them they're an extractor." if they are getting too much interest off of me they'll they as it's called a user or um extraction is okay if it's if the money is going back to the community and the family and it's helping us survive and maintain our livelihoods but extraction is not okay if it's um if the money is in larger proportions going to china and it's not staying here or helping our lives So people would often create these frameworks of when certain people or certain activities were moral or not. So that's why I use the term moral economic dichotomization to describe that. Um, But another, just another aspect that I think is important to emphasize regarding this term um, is that, and I mentioned that there's, that the word moral economy, of course, moral economy is in this term. So the reason I also chose this as like a compound moral economy is because it's when people use these dichotomizations, it's often indicative of a moment where that person themselves is seen moral and economic as two different frameworks that they of society that they have to measure to have to balance against. So what I mean is like, for example, even in English, we talk about um, that there's economic value, which people associate with Monet- like money, like what the price is on a market. And then there's social values. And so we often, when we think of social values, we think of religion, we think of different forms of communal morality. And so we ourselves put those into two different worlds. We fracture value into two different and different categories. And so when I was doing this field work, I noticed that when I would be in these moments where people felt uncomfortable about what they were doing, but felt economic pressure. That this kind of top-down pressure encouraged people to see economy or economic value and social values as like a polarity or two different realms of society that needed to be negotiated. And so that's also why I have, I decided moral economy would still like moral economic dichotomization would be a good term for this kind of moment.
1: Would you say that there's a sense among the people that you spoke with that, markets and capitalism is a necessary evil? Or do they sort of yearn for the socialist past?
2: I you know, I've been going to Mongolia for 17 years. And I feel like you can see a lot of shifts with that. But with like, in these like kind of more rural places, a very common trope I encountered was like the kind of 50 to 60 year old individual who was the last generation of cap of like socialism, who very much wished they went could go back. So it's like a very Common phenomenon, also I think, throughout the for- post-socialist world is a lot in these rural regions, um, the uh, like kind of people who worked for these cooperatives and believed in it, and who now wish they could go back. Um, regarding cap- uh, regarding capitalism, yeah, I mean the general yes. So at that time, very much so that the the feeling was like this is just this is the way the world is now, and we have to figure out the best way to negotiate it um so that it's a necessary evil yeah i do think that you could describe it that way
1: it's really fascinating how significant the banking system is in people's day-to-day lives you know how they depend on on loans uh does does banking you know function differently there um than it might in the west what are you know what what are the banks there how do they operate primarily
2: does banking function differently? I mean, I think that's part of the pride of banking industry that it doesn't, right? That's part of their modus operandi is that they go around the world and they implement similar like systems and narratives and concepts. Um, but so how banking functions in this rural field site where I was, um, you know, in the early 2000s, uh, a spe- a, um, a bank... Um, started like moving out into rural regions uh, a commercial bank went out more into rural regions of Mongolia and you know with the intention of course of like helping rural people who might need a loan um, to create new forms of enterprise and that was very much encouraged so um and so starting in the 2000s and 2010s, increasingly banks moved to rural areas. And, you know, the un- this like cliche term banking the unbanked, but that was, some- that was very much a goal at that time. And it did work. I mean, rural Mongolians actively engaged in banking options. Um, one thing, the only thing, well, I mean, there are some differences, of course. I mean, the most obvious one being is that, of course, herders themselves, pastoral herders, um, would like to have loans, but their only form of collateral is, of course, their herds. So there are some very innovative um, banking, tech um, like loan systems of, for example, using a herd as, like, a, as a form of collateral. Those tend to be very short-term loans because of the risk that banks associate with the having a herd as your collateral form. But still, um, that exists. Um, but I think for the basic tenants of it is similar you have a collateral form um you can take out a loan um and you have a salary and contract and you can take out a loan Um, but with the rural region specifically where i was but i think this is common in many areas so in the 20s 20 like mid 2000s and and towards the 2010s um more it was very like more and more the government also subsidized loans as like a development form so that for example rural people again banking unbanked could also have loans to create new forms of enterprise but when you're a rural when you're very rural and you're in like mongolia and you don't have very many people to sell something to because you know there's only like this township for example is only a thousand seven hundred people many people took out banks but many but weren't able to really pay them Uh, many people took out loans but weren't really able to pay them back because there's only so many bakers a town can have right so as a result of that um just it became very common in Mongolia and in Magtash specifically to take out a loan and to take out another loan and to use that money to pay off the first loan and so some of the In Magtas, but also in Mongolia, this is a common phenomenon is that there's just like very messy loan networks where people are taking money out from one loan and paying another loan. And so everybody's and also friend and family groups help each other. So if I need to pay back money, then my dad can take out a loan, give me that money and I use it to pay the interest. And so it just became this form of chronic indebtedness where everyone had multiple loans and they were just kind of moving money back and forth in order to pay off each other's loans, it, resulting in this kind of chronic indebtedness where, but nobody is really able to free themselves of the loan.
1: Yeah. That sounds uh, like uh, maybe something that, yeah, that, Seemed like it—it it was very likely to happen in a place where <laughs> yeah. people weren't—uh—weren't uh, weren't used to taking loans out.
2: Sure, it's also based on the idea that—I mean, one thing is, of course, the credit system itself in Mongolia. I don't even know if there—you have a such thing as a credit score. So, and also everything is credit itself is based on the idea that you have the technology to monitor it, monitor it, and if you are in an area where just the technology for these things doesn't exist, then you can't monitor it, and so it has no value. Um, but another thing that really the contrast with Mongolia and compared to other places is that the idea a loan is based on a concept of an individual's morality, so that an individual takes out a loan, and it's their own like ability to pay it back, and it's like like a responsibility they carry. And when you live in a place where people live in really tight friend and family groups, those loans often took on the burden of the whole family, and so you never had just one person trying to pay it back. And so that's really what resulted is that these kind of, there's like with a lot of this, there's like a clash between the individualistic ideas and a lot of these like new market forms or forms of law even that got in, that brought, that were arrived in Mongolia with the clash of, yeah, they they clashed often with like local narratives of families, like groups helping each other, like being very close um, or everybody knowing each other in a township. Um, Yeah.
1: So, in what ways is is Magtach, uh, talk both an example of many places? Uh, pardon my pronunciation. No worries. <laughs> uh, but in, in what ways is, is it both an example of many places in a state of economic transition, uh, and in what ways is Magtach uh, an exception?
2: Um. Okay. So we touched upon this, I think, but in some ways, it's it's like kind of like typical in the sense of like a lot of these like rural areas in this post-socialist world where these cooperatives collapsed and people wish they could go back you know um and that these areas are now deindustrialized and people feel like abandoned or neglected or they don't have infrastructure anymore so that's kind of kind of classic from that angle um it's also from the viewpoint of like a development a developing country developing becoming part of the international global market system Um, it's pretty classic in that it became like a resource frontier, you know, like that it's like full of cheap resources. And so, um, and that without the ability, especially with the collapse of the, all the cooperatives from after, um, during privatization, without the ability for, um, local people to actually refine those resources so that they sell these resources at very cheap prices on the international market, um. And that also, you know, Mongolia as like a resource frontier too, Um, you know, Mongolia's got virgin untouched soils, soil and resources, organic resources that are virtually, that are like impossible to find in many of these surrounding countries, like in Korea, South Korea or Japan or uh, China at the moment. So that creates this pressure where Mongolia becomes like a, a, like a source of uh, cheap nature really for international for other industrialized markets in the region Um, but Magtach specifically when I was there was pretty exceptional in the fact that um, people were all engaged in these kind of smuggling networks or these uh, wildlife networks but they very much had the sense but because we were all neglected together that we will help each other so um, Magtach was pretty exemplary in the sense that it was People at the time in particular, which has changed a little bit since then, um, people really helped each other a lot. Um, They were, it was like a rural region where people were all felt neglected. And so when they would engage in these smuggling activities, they would work together in groups to do so. Um, So there's like some, yeah, some like history, you could argue, from like kind of carryover from the socialist era um, or. Uh, historical forms of like labor pooling, like herders helping each other out, but there was definitely features of that in Muktaz at the time.
1: Since you first went to the region to to conduct uh, research for the book, what has changed? You know, what's the the state? If you uh, you know, know what the state has been recently, or or even now, what things are like?
2: Yeah. So since then, um, so I mentioned this fang feng trade. So since then, uh. Actually, through coronavirus, the Chinese government declared feng feng, like an official tradi- Chinese traditional medicine plant against coronavirus. So the price of organic feng feng, so not even like cultivated in China feng feng, but this like untouched resource tripled um, right during coronavirus. Um, so as a result of that, these feng f- this feng feng pressure has really like increased. But... The, what has changed is, for example, during coronavirus, of course, the Chinese government closed its borders. So, um, so money, people could not make their money off of these kind of forms of extraction anymore. And since then, the borders have opened again, and these, these things have continued in force again. Um, but people, for example, picked feng feng, but they had to engage in new kind of smuggling networks where they had to make deals with people in the city to extract it under like international contract or like export it under international contracts and in addition to that feng feng as like a plant that people can openly pick the like illegalization has gotten harder or harsher now so the penalty if you are caught so the result is essentially like compared to then when everybody was engaging in this and they were helping each other there's been a lot more like monopolization and like kind of underground networks emerging so so, like local people making deals with people who have international permissions to extract to like export things so this when i was there it was very much like this moment where a lot of these new enterprises were emerging and there was still like a bounty of resources and so people were helping each other do so um but compared to then with the closing of the border it's basically and also the um increased illegalization illegalization it's made it much much more of like almost like an underground drug trade now so like a lot of So you can see how quickly something shifts from this, like, oh, we're all engaging the economy and helping each other together to like, oh, now we have to create these kind of like networks, these underground networks to um, export these things. So there's been through these things and a more, I would say, monopolization and kind of cartel-esque development.
1: Has there been an increase in violence at all?
2: No, um, no, because Mongolia in general is a very peaceful country um luckily so i mean i was able to do research about an illegal topic but because of features of illegality in mongolia um it's not very well the specific specific um features being that um there is a huge discrepancy between the law on paper and how things are actually done on the day-to-day level especially in rural regions and because of that um, they like because of that Um, the law doesn't have the same like doesn't have the same bite and so like penalization essentially and so as a result of that like there hasn't been more violence like people in, even in rural Mongolia don't often get back like I think it's a contrast if you lived in like a city where there are very few resources and then if you are being penalized for something then you're really being backed into a corner, you't like you feel there's like an existential angst in Mongolia or in rural areas, especially because of still, there's just a lot of open land and a lot of resources. When something becomes uh, illegal, it doesn't have the same existential angst, especially even if you get penalized for it. And so as a result of that, there's been more underground networks, but the actual physical violence hasn't emerged yet. And I hope it doesn't.
1: So, with this uh, project, is there are there any other areas of uh, of study that you're looking at? You know, in regards to Mongolia, uh, in regards to the to, to MacTach, or 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 anything else uh, at all?
2: Yeah, I mean, I meant, I meant I kind of touched upon this, but like, um, basically, I have right now a European research, like a European Union fellowship, to do research on the feng feng trade. So when I was in Magtash, I was very interested in how everybody was engaging in this plant. Um, And also there just was, is, there remains to be no awareness of it in like English speaking material, but it's right now like a phenomenon in like the traditional medicinal world. So in Asia. Um, And so I wanted to see how, you know, I, I basically got a grant to look at The fengfeng trade and also um, licorice root, which is another plant highly desirable in uh, traditional medicinal industries across Asia. um, And how these plants are being extracted and other plants in Mongolia are being extracted for these traditional medicinal um, resource network, like kind of the industries. So essentially, as I mentioned, um, a lot of in... um, these plants are deemed highly desirable because they're rare and organic, but kind of untouched soil and untouched plants are almost non-existent in industrialized countries anymore. So that opens up Central Asia, and in this case, Mongolia, to be a a large source of cheap labor, especially if the law hasn't been developed enough to prevent um, this from happening. So that is the case right now that this so I was I am currently looking at these networks and how Mongolia has become a source of these kind of of na- of these these plants for the East Asian and Chinese traditional plant market.
1: That sounds yeah that sounds really interesting and you know certainly something that you know I'd not not heard about until uh, and, until you, you discussed it. Um, well Hedwig thank you so much for for being a guest on on the New Books Network. Uh, it was really uh, you know interesting to talk to you about about this uh about mongolia and uh you know the the particular uh aspects of the economy and this 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 region that you studied um so thank you so much
2: yeah thank you so much for having me and letting me rant a bit about mongolia rant and share (laughs) about mongolia and you know traditional medicinal plant markets
1: of course that's what we do yeah thank you so much